Psalm 57. I'll just read a couple of verses there. I will give thanks to thee, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to thee among the nations. For thy loving kindness is great to the heavens, and thy truth to the clouds. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let thy glory be above all the earth. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you are the exalted one, that one day we will be drawn into your presence to experience the reality of who you are. Now we see through a glass darkly, but then, Father, we shall see face to face. And this we believe with our whole hearts. And Father, we know that even as we uh, look at this passage of Scripture this morning, this life is full of trial and turmoil and difficulty. And yet through it all, you walk faithfully with your people. And your goal is to draw us into right fellowship with you. What Christianity is, is fellowship with God through his Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray, <clears throat> pray that you will guide our focus this morning, that you will be present with us here. Touch each life according to your will and according to each need. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll turn to the 20th chapter of Judges, I'd like to begin reading with the first verse. Then all of the sons of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, came out, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people, even of all the tribes of Israel, took their stand in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 foot soldiers who drew the sword. Now the sons of Benjamin heard that the sons of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the sons of Israel said, Tell us, how did this wickedness, <clears throat> wickedness take place? So the Levites, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came with my concubine to spend the night at Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. But the men of Gibeah rose up against me and surrounded me, surrounded the house at night because of me. They intended to kill me. Instead, they ravished my concubine so that she died. And I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent it throughout the land, sent her throughout the land of Israel's inheritance, for they have committed lewd and disgraceful act in Israel. Behold, all you sons of Israel, give your advice and counsel here. Now this is, of course, not your typical Mother's Day lesson, obviously. It just happens that this is where we're at. And every passage of Scripture has a message for our hearts. And uh, even these that seem very, very hard to deal with at times, God speaks to us through them. And so let's see what he has to say here this morning. This means, of course, of communication was ghastly. So ghastly, in fact, that the uh, Israel, the land of Israel, the people of Israel were shocked into action. And I, I, you know, I think that's one of the lessons that comes out of this that sometimes God has to yell very loudly before we hear. And this is a very a loud yelling into the ears of the people of Israel. They're shocked by this grisly action that this Levite did. And so what they did was called an emergency convention, which convened in Mizpah, in the southern part of the Ephraimite area, just north of Jerusalem. Here's Gibeah, where the problem took place. And just a few miles north up in here is Mizpah. And we'll be noticing Bethel, Bethel also, that's another city that will be part of what we're talking about this morning. 
We're told in this passage that the chiefs of Israel, and, and the actual Hebrew word here means cornerstones or pillars, pillars of the society. They're the ones who are meeting together here at Mizpah. And the point of this meeting is, of course, or of their coming to the meeting, is to give it credence, to give it official status. It was actually a council of war. And we know this because we discover in the passage that we're told that 400,000 men-at-arms also gathered here at Mizpah. So it was a bit of a crowded place, you can imagine. Tents pitched all over, the, all over the landscape here. And the fact that these men of war came indicates that action was planned. It was assumed that probably the result of this council would be that action needed to be taken against these evil men of Gibeah. Well, to be frank, the, these, these parts of this woman who was cut up by her husband and sent her out, uh, one part was sent to each of the 12 tribes. And so one of the tribes which received this, this message was the tribe of Benjamin. So the tribe of Benjamin knew what the problem was, and they knew what uh, the issue w w was that brought them all together there at Mizpah. But the Benjamites do not come to Mizpah. There is no mention of anybody from Benjamin being at this meeting. And of course, the meeting is occurring just north of the tribal area of Benjamin. This is the tribal area of Benjamin right in through here. Gibeah and Gibeon are all part of the tribal area of Benjamin. You see the name Benjamin right in there. So it's right in the tribal area of Benjamin. And they are meeting just over the border in Ephraim at Mizpah, outside of the territory of uh, Benjamin. So obviously, and we discover from the passage that Benjamin knew something was going on because in the third verse of this passage, you read in the parenthetical statement, now the sons of Benjamin heard that the sons of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. Of course they heard. They'd received the message to themselves. What happens is we have something like a grand jury or a great tribunal which is meeting here to hear the word of the Levite himself. They had gotten this grisly message and so they're gathered together to hear the actual testimony of the Levite himself. And so that's what this passage, of course, repeats. He tells the story of why he was at Gibeah. Why was he in this town? Because this wasn't his hometown. He came from the hill country of Ephraim. And so he tells the story of what happened. He claimed that while he was passing through Gibeah and he was staying there overnight, that his life was threatened and his concubine was murdered. Now, what you read in this passage is he declares that they have committed a lewd and disgraceful act in the, in, within Israel. And what he's saying is that the reason that I am calling this meeting or the reason I have, uh, have sent this message out is not simply because a murder has taken place. It's far beyond that. It's because these persons in their activity have done what is lewd and disgraceful within the nation of Israel. Homosexuality and sodomy, both of which were part of what these men there at Gibeah were attempting to practice, were viewed as gross violations of the law of God. Now we hear all kinds of things today about it. In fact, in the, what, what is it, I think U.S. News, there's an article about, uh, did Paul really say anything that was negative about homosexuality? Well, let me read to you from Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus 18, verse 22, 
says, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. Why? Because it is an abomination. And then in the 20th chapter, the 13th verse, if there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. And those are just two verses that I have picked. The, the point I'm making is that there is no doubt about the fact that these individuals were in violation of the law of God, the express law of God. So after the testimony that was given by the Levite and the evidence was presented, this de facto tribunal was asked for a decision. What do you think? This is what happened. This is why it happened. This is how these people acted. Should this be allowed to continue within the nation of Israel? Well, let's read about the response beginning at verse 8 of Judges 20. Then all of the people arose as one man, saying, Not one of us will go to his tent, nor will any of us return to his house. But now this is the thing which we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot. We will take ten men out of a hundred throughout the tribes of Israel, one hundred out of a thousand, and a thousand out of ten thousand, to supply food for the people, that when they come to Gibeah of Benjamin, they may punish them for all the disgraceful acts that they have committed in Israel. Thus all the men of Israel were gathered against the city, united as one man. Then the tribes of Israel sent men throughout through the entire tribe of Benjamin, saying, What is this wickedness that has taken place among you? Now then deliver up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and remove this wickedness from Israel. But the sons of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the sons of Israel. And the sons of Benjamin gathered from the cities of, to Gibeah to go out to battle against the sons of Israel. And from the cities on that day, the sons of Israel were numbered 26,000 men who, who draw the sword, besides inhabitants of Gibeah who were numbered 700 choice men. Out of all these people, 700 choice men were left-handed. Each one could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. The result of the Levites' testimony the elders proclaimed that wickedness existed within Gibeah and this vileness had to be dealt with. They had to be punished. 400,000 men of war have gathered and these 400,000 men of war are authorized to carry out this, this procedure, this surgery within Israel, this cutting out of this cancer. Because if the cancer was allowed to remain unpunished and unnoticed, it will begin to spread and would destroy the whole nation. We're told in this passage that certain of them were to, uh, a, a thousand out of ten thousand, were to act as the, the supply individuals. And so of the 400,000, we've got 360,000 who are actually going to be in combat, 40,000 who are going to serve behind the lines as the supply personnel, as they might be called. But first, you'll notice... They don't just rush into action here. The first thing they do is they send a message throughout all of Benjamin. They go throughout all of Benjamin and they say, what is this? What is this you have allowed here? Will you deal with this issue that's in your midst? They wanted to avoid military action if possible. They wanted Benjamin to deal with their own problem. They were invited to arrest the sons of Belial, which is what they're called in the passage, and turn them over to the Israelite force that they might be dealt with according to the law. Foolishly, however, we discover that the Benjamites decided, no, we're not going to do that. 
we're going to defend them because this is our territory. These are our people and we will defend them. And so what was going to be simply a judicial action turns into intertribal war. Terrible kind of war. Not that there's any nice kind of war. But it seems that civil war is, is more vile than any other kind of war. The Benjamites undoubtedly believe that the other tribes are acting high-handedly. How dare you tell us that we must deal with these people? What business is it of yours? These are our people. They live in our tribal territory. Why, don't you di why didn't you just send a group of elders in to instruct us to tell us about this problem and let us deal with it? Why did you gather together 400,000 strong, intimidating us and threatening us and telling us what we must do? The reason this could be seen as a viable option to them was the fact that the tribes were all independent. We're not talking about an Israelite nation. There was no king in Israel. Israel was not a homogeneous country. It was a heterogeneous country made up of 12 separate tribes that were sort of in a confederacy together, but they were not linked together by a solid bond of political bond anyway. They were supposed to be linked together through God. God is, the, is their sovereign and they were supposed to serve under him, but they weren't doing a very good job of that. And so the tribe of Benjamin said, hey, what business is it of yours? This is our problem. It's our territory. You've got no business interfering in our internal affairs. Well, you know, as tragic as this account is, I think that the men of Benjamin thought that this was much ado about nothing. After all, there was no intentional death here. They didn't try to kill this woman. And after all, she was only a concubine. No big deal. Now, of course, to us today, we say a person's a person. But in the society of that day, that was not the way they thought. I don't think that the people of Benjamin saw the frightening parallel to the account of Sodom in the 19th chapter of Genesis, which we read last time. And as my wife pointed out very interestingly after class last time, uh, 19 chapter of Judges is where this account is. 19 chapter of Genesis, well, I don't know, probably no uh, significance to the 19 there, but it is interesting. I, I don't think they saw that as an issue because how did God deal with Sodom? You know, fire and brimstone down on them and destroyed the city. The Benjamites, we discover in this passage, were able to muster an army. And they were able to call together 26,000 men, plus 700 men from the city of Gibeah itself. Well, if you think of the fact, the city of Gibeah had 700 choice men. This would mean men in the right military age. And if you figure, well, if they have 700 in the right military age, what was the total population of the city? Well, the total population of the city would have been probably between five and 10,000. So it wasn't a tiny little town. And so the people from Gibeah were willing, of course, to participate in their own defense. But the key to the reason that the, the Benjamites were willing to even think of the fact that with 26,000 men, they're going to go out and march against 360,000 men. That seems ridiculous. Who would do a thing like that? Well, the reason they were willing to do this was, of course, first of all, they were personally offended. They had their own uh, pride to deal with. But secondly, we're told in verse 16, they had 700 left-handed slingers who could hit a hare, and by that they didn't mean a rabbit, a human hare without missing. And they probably don't mean at one foot, you know. Hold the hare up about 20 feet away and, phew, you know, throw the rock right through the hare. Expert slingers. Now, 
you know, for us today, uh, some of us, especially if we were boys when we were young, and if we were male, we probably were boys when we were young. <laughs> we probably had a slingshot. And, and we probably played with a slingshot. And I remember even having a, a kind of similar kind of sling to what David might have used, and I couldn't really get the thing to work very well. But remember the story of David, which of course comes later in time. Uh, David was able to go out and with a single stone slay this giant. Now certainly God was into this, and, and God made sure the stone hit where it was supposed to hit. But David was an expert slinger. So a person who was an expert at slinging stones would be somebody today similar to someone who was a sniper, except, of course, not at quite the same range, of course. But you could pick guys off, on, you know, stand at a safe distance and pick guys off as they're trying to come at you. So 700 guys, that's a, that's a pretty good force of expert slingers. So the Benjamites, they felt like they had kind of an ace up their sleeves, you might say. Well, let's see what happens. Verse 17. Then the men of Israel, besides Benjamin, were numbered 400,000 men who draw the sword. All these were men of war. Now the sons of Israel arose, went up to Bethel, and inquired of God and said, Who shall go up first for us to battle against the sons of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. So the sons of Israel arose in the morning and camped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to battle against Benjamin, and the men of Israel arrayed for battle against them at Gibeah. Then the sons of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and fell to the ground that day, 22,000 men of Israel. For the men, for, but the people, the men of Israel, encouraged themselves and arrayed for battle again in the place where they had arrayed themselves the first day. And the sons of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening and inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall we again draw near for battle against the sons of my brother Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against him. Here's where the battle is taking place, Gibeah. And here's Bethel. And they had been camped about halfway in between. Mizpah is not mentioned on there. The 11 tribes had superior manpower. This is no doubt. And in spite of that fact, they had enough sense, enough fear of the Lord that they decided to go and check with the Lord at Bethel. Now the question is, what were they doing checking with the Lord at Bethel? Because the tabernacle during the time of the judges was generally at Shiloh. And Shiloh's 15 miles north of Bethel. So, what happened apparently was that either for the purposes of this encounter or for some other reason, the, the tabernacle had been moved to Bethel. And so, I, I think probably for the purposes of this encounter, so that they would not have to go far in order to inquire of the Lord, because if they had to travel all the way to Shiloh to check with the Lord, I mean, you know, we're talking about a day's journey up and a day's journey back. We're talking about a lot of time passing here. And so, only four miles north of Mizpah was Bethel. So the tribal leaders went there before the Lord at the tabernacle, and I think they asked the high priest to check with God, and probably using the Urim and the Thummim, to find what God wanted them to do. Now what is fascinating about this passage is, from verse 18, in, in verse 18 we read, Now the sons of Israel arose, went up to Bethel, inquired of the Lord, and said, 
who shall go up for us first for us to battle against the sons of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. There's no question in the passage whereby they are saying to God, shall we fight Benjamin? It, it seems that they are assuming that they're supposed to attack Benjamin. And they're simply asking God who should be first in order of the attack. And the fact that God says Judah shall be first could be read as validating their assumption. But of course, we can also say that maybe they did ask God first, is this what we're supposed to do? And God responded positively, this is what you're supposed to do. And that that was not recorded in, in the passage. Whatever the case is, God says Judah is to go first. Now, we could probably read a lot of things into that. The passage does not identify why Judah should go first. Judah, of course, was ultimately in the long run to be the regal uh, tribe. It would be the tribe of the, of, of the king. And we also know that the woman who was slain was from the tribe of Judah. Maybe that's the reason. We don't know. But Judah was said to go first. We find nothing else in this passage that tells us anything about the significance of Judah going first or what the result was. We're not even told anything of the order of battle other than that statement. The following day, Israel moved into its camp at, outside of Gibeah. They arrayed themselves out in uh, the plain and began to march up the hill in an attack against Gibeah. The battle didn't go well for Israel. Here we've got 360,000 men surrounding Gibeah, marching uphill to battle, and out of the city come fewer than 27,000 men to defend the city. And what we read in the passage is that Israel lost 22,000 men. Well, the elders of Israel were stunned. What? Lord, you said we're supposed to do this, and you told us how to do it, and, and this is what happens. And they returned to Bethel. Good action. Go to God. See what God has to say. And they poured out their dismay before the Lord, and they, they wanted to seek whether or not they should continue this. Were we doing the right thing? They weren't sure that they got the message right the first time. Have you ever done that? You went to the Lord and, and you, feel, you felt like this is what God wanted you to do and you started doing it and things weren't going very well at all and you go back and say, Lord, is this really what you said? I think we've all been in that place at one time or another. But that they were very doubtful is clearly indicated by how they rephrased the question which they put to the Lord. You remember the first question was that they put to the Lord, who shall go up first against the sons of Benjamin? Notice how they put it this time. Shall we again draw near for battle against the sons of my brother Benjamin? <laughs> Suddenly they're emphasizing their kinship. Maybe God doesn't want us killing off our own brothers. Maybe God doesn't want us going into battle against one of the tribes of Israel. They had much doubt here because of the initial result of the battle. Often when the work of the Lord is being carried out, things do not seem to go well at first. I'm not going to say this is a principle, but it turns out often to be a reality. I'm reminded of the Christian Missionary Alliance when it was first begun. Its first action was to send five young men missionaries to 
tropical Africa, and within one year, they were all buried in the ground. You might say, well, I don't think God wants us to do this. God did want them to do that. They were the first fruits, so to speak, I, I guess you could say. The same way with the outreach to the, the, the tribe of the Alca or the Warani Indians in Ecuador. The five missionaries who first made the initial encounter there on the ground were all murdered by those people. And yet, because there was follow-up and because the wife of one of the killed missionaries and the sister of another went in and ministered to these people, that tribe turned to the Lord almost in mass. And one of the most goosebump-creating pictures I remember is the son of the pilot who flew in to the Alka Indians and who was murdered that day. That son being baptized in that river by his father's killers many years later. Can you imagine? My wife and I had the privilege in being in Ecuador and teaching the son, several of the children of those five who, who died because Nate Saint and Roger Udarian both had three children when they died. And uh, those children went on and were in the Alliance Academy in Iquito when we were there. And so we had opportunity to know them and, and to teach them. And uh, one of them, uh, Steve Saint, who is an MAF pilot, by the way, follows in, followed in the footsteps of his father, he wrote a term paper for me in one of my classes in, in which he had gone back into that tribe and wrote a paper about that encounter and about the people, first-hand experiences with these very people who had killed his father. And he's gone back, by the way, in recent years and, and spend time with them, trying to protect them because now that they've become, quote, civilized, they're, they're being taken advantage of by the government and, you know, tourists and all kinds of things. And so he's in there trying to, trying to help them. Colin, it's interesting those five that were mentioned, the first alliance missionaries, when they came back, or they didn't come back when the aftermath of that was what convinced Dr. Simpson that there had to be some level of formal training. Uh, you just didn't run out, you know. Yeah. Happenstance, and that in turn was the seed of our Bible college movement. That's great. Wisdom. Yeah. I know that in the past, we've, uh, at the college, we've run into young people who have come for the first year and they say, why do I have to go all through all this college? I want to just get out there and minister. Well, of course, it's sort of like saying, well, do you want to go out there as a butter knife or do you want to go out there as a nice sharp knife and serve the Lord? Well, you better be honed first. You better be prepared before you go out. So I, I think that this particular event shocked the people of Israel. How can we put a disaster like this in perspective? 22,000 men. Now, of course, given what happens today in this world, that, that isn't a terribly large amount of, money, uh, amount of people because people are being murdered all the way around the world in all kinds of horrible battles and, and civil wars all the time now. And, and you think, these 22,000 men uh, paid this price in an attempt to eliminate a cancer in Israel that up to this point had cost the life of, of only one woman. But, of course, the principle was what we're dealing with. The principle was not just simply retribution or punishment for the death of one woman. It was the, the, the lewd and lascivious behavior that was being countenanced within the tribe of Benjamin. Put this death rate in perspective, however. 22,000 men being killed out of 400,000 would be the equivalent to the United States in World War II losing 800,000 men in a single battle as opposed to 400,000 men over the entire war. Actually, though, I, I, 
I, I thought about this when I was, was dealing with this. Are, are there other parallels to this in history? And there are many of them. And a couple, three that came to mind where a large superior force was defeated or, you know, was, was held off or even defeated by a small, similarly equipped force. That happened many times in history. For example, most of us know about King Leonidas of the Spartans, where 300 Spartans stood in a pass against tens of thousands of Persians and held them off for days. 300 against tens of thousands. And then probably some of you remember the story of Hannibal at Cannae back in the third century before Christ, where Hannibal with 45,000 annihilated a Roman army that was more than double the size of his army. And then, of course, probably the most famous of all was Alexander the Great, who in the great battle of Arbella with 30,000 men defeated a Persian army of 150,000 men, five times the size of his army. And yet he was able to defeat that army. So what happened here is not without a parallel historically. And there are other instances. Some of those instances, of course, the two armies weren't exactly similarly equipped, like the British at Plassey where the British had only 3,000 and the Indians had 50,000. But of course, the British also had um, discipline and cannons and a few other things that the Indians didn't have. Reading on in Judges chapter 20, verse 24, Then the sons of Israel came against the sons of Benjamin the second day. And Benjamin went out against them from Gibeah the second day and fell to the ground again 18,000 men of the sons of Israel, all who drew the sword. Then all the sons of Israel and all the people went up and came to Bethel and wept. Thus they remained there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas the son of Eleazar, Aaron's son, stood before it to minister in those days, saying, Shall I again go up? go out to battle against the sons of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will deliver them into your hands. Following God's instruction, Israel returned to the attack the next day and promptly lost 18,000 men. If you're discouraged after a defeat the first day, you go back and recheck to make sure you got it right. You go back the second day and it happens again. And that can be a little discouraging. That can cause one to really doubt that they're hearing from God himself. Now, of course, physically, part of what we're seeing here is the distinct advantage that the men of Be Benjamin had. And I, I told you a little bit about this before. Gibeah is set on a relatively steep and prominent hill. The town crowned a hill north of Jerusalem there. And this city was a fairly good-sized city and, and probably had fairly heavy walls. And the men of Benjamin were coming out of the city down the hill to attack the men of Israel who were trying to come up the hill. Now, you all well know, historically, in almost every battle that has ever been significant in history, he who holds the high ground wins. And so here are the Benjamites, they're shooting arrows and slinging stones downhill. Gravity was an ally. The Israelites coming uphill, gravity was their enemy. And this, of course, helped the Benjamites for sure. But the point, the point and the significant thing about this particular passage is Israel was totally 
shaken and humbled. And they returned before the Lord at Bethel, desperately wanting to hear from the Lord. What did they do? They fasted. That was not mentioned before. They prayed. That was not mentioned before. They sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings. That was not mentioned before. There is nothing like desperate times to make people serious in their desire to hear the word of the Lord and to obey it, right? Which is one of the primary reasons God allows hard times to come. God allows desperate times. We live in a day and age where many uh, churches in America have gone the route of saying, you know, God is a God of love. He only wants you to have pleasant time all the time. Never should you have hard times, which is totally without grounds in Scripture. Jesus said, in this life you will have tribulation. That doesn't mean we go out looking for it. doesn't mean we like it. But it simply means it happens. It happens because that's the thing that's required to make us strong in the Lord, to become strong in our faith. You read the 11th chapter of Hebrews, and you, you read about all those men and women of faith, and you discover uh, none of them were born with a silver spoon in their mouths, just kicked back in a hammock and sipped lemonade all their lives, and were a powerful man or woman for God. No, the scripture says they were sawed in half, they were burned, they were crucified, you know, all kinds of horrible things happened. And that's what makes people strong in the Lord. The factor that probably more than anything else drove my wife and I to covenanting together to pray together with each other every day, which we have done now for many, many years, is, was tribulation in, in our family. Our oldest daughter had decided she was going to do her own thing and sow her wild oats, and, and that's what drove us to do this. And as a result, it's developed a pattern in our lives which has been, well, God has used it. And not only has our wild oats daughter, but all of our daughters are walking with God, and we know it's of God. And these hard times, God doesn't delight in making life difficult for us at all. But he knows that if hard times come, we will be changed. In verse 28, we have some insight into this event. We're told that the high priest was Phineas, grandson of Aaron, high priest. And that tells us three things. First of all, faith did really still exist in Israel because Phineas was a firebrand for God. Secondly, it tells us Israel had heard from the Lord and they were being guided from God, uh, by God because Phineas was a true high priest. He would have tolerated, you know, fake hearing from the Lord. And thirdly, it tells us that this event occurred much before most of what we've already read in the book of Judges. That the event occurred early in the period of the book uh, uh, of the Judges because Phineas lived during the life of Moses. Moses was his granduncle. And Moses knew Phineas very well and praised Phineas very highly. Do you remember? Maybe you can't remember that far back, but let me read from Numbers chapter 25. Remember, there was sin in the Israelite camp. Numbers 25, verse 6. Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the congregation of the sons of Israel while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced through both of them 
both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through the body. So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. And those who died by the plague were 24,000. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give him my covenant of peace. It shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. Those are powerful words coming from God towards this man, Phineas. And so here he stands as high priest. And so we can trust that what was happening was of, the God, of God because Phineas was involved there. So what brought about this tragedy? Why was it in, when Israel was trying to, to carry out what seemed to be the will of God, they were allowed to lose 40,000 men? That's a lot of people to die over an issue such as this. It seems to come from this passage. Israel had been participating in unfaithfulness to God. The disastrous losses brought them to their knees in repentance and spurred them to return to sacrificial worship. It seems that they hadn't been seeking God in prayer. They hadn't been making the sacrifices. They hadn't been fasting, all of which was part of their, the way they were supposed to live before God to ensure his presence in their lives. And God intended to root the sin out of Benjamin, but he was also concerned with the sin in Israel. And you know the passage of Scripture which teaches us that you take care of the log in your own eye before you deal with the stick in somebody else's eye. <clears throat> God was saying to Israel, you're hypocrites, you're pharisaical, you want to deal with the sin of Benjamin, but what about the sin within you? As I thought of that, this passage in Matthew, which you all know very well, came to mind, Matthew chapter 7, reading these first few verses, first five verses, do not judge lest you be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. My wife and I yesterday went down to Josh a bronze wedding in Sacramento. <clears throat> and on the way uh, down and back, we were listening to some tapes that we'd had for, for years. The title of the series was Whatever Happened to the Holy Spirit? And in, in one of the messages, this was John MacArthur from Southern California who was talking, and, and he dealt with similar ideas. And he was saying here that the Spirit of God works through people in the church to call others to account before God for their deviation from God's working in their lives. But, he said, you don't dare go up and confront someone else about their sin if you've got sin in your own life. You've got to be cleansed and, and the Spirit of God has got to clean, clean your life up before you can be used to touch another person's life about the issues in their own lives. And that's, of course, what's being said here. 
Don't try to peck a speck out of somebody else's eye if you've got this gigantic log of sin in your own eye. And so I think what God is saying here to Israel and has allowed this, this inordinate loss of life, he's saying to Israel here, I will not tolerate disobedience. I will not tolerate a lack of repentance. Why? Because God loves his people. And those whom he loves, he chastises, he disciplines, right? <laughs> we all say amen every time we read this uh, verse in, uh, in Hebrews. Let me just turn to it quickly and read it to you. Hebrews uh, 12, 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful root fruit of righteousness. None of us likes the discipline, any kind of discipline. But when it comes from God, the purpose of that discipline is to draw men and women back into a right relationship with Him, that the peaceable, peaceable, peaceable fruit of righteousness might be worked out. And that's what God is doing to Israel here. That's what He's saying to Israel. And then secondly, it proves how crucial a right relationship with God is. It is more important than life itself. The characteristic glib attitude that most people have towards spiritual matters is wiped out by a disaster of this magnitude. If one-tenth of the entire force is killed, talking about husbands and brothers uh, of others there, they, they can't just glibly say, oh, well, it's part of the job. No, I mean, they're driven to their knees before God. 40,000 men is more than we lost in three and a half years of the Korean War. And Israel lost it in two days of fighting. After weeping, after prayer, after sacrifice on the part of Israel, God responded. He said to them, go to battle again. But he says something different this time that he had not said either of the times before. I will deliver Benjamin into your hand. You are obedient. You have restored fellowship. Now the log is out of your eye and I can use you to deal with the sin in your brother Benjamin. I think that's part of the message of this particular ghastly story. Well, we'll look at what happened as a result next week.